Well, it's my privilege uh, this morning to uh, welcome our speaker. Uh, Dr. Ware was born and raised in Spokane, Washington, by Christian parents who were committed to Christ, to missions, and the work of the local church. Um, He was educated at Whitmont uh, College, Western Seminary, the University of Washington, and Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, He has taught in several leading evangelical colleges and seminaries for over 30 years. Since 1998, he has served at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he is a T. Rupert and Lucille Coleman Professor of Christian Theology and Chairman of the Department of Christian Theology. And so um, I know that you're going to be blessed as we were yesterday for our men's conference. So, brother, come on up and minister the word to us. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor, so very much for the privilege of uh, sharing the pulpit with you this morning. I am honored to be here to do this and am just really delighted with the theme we've been been uh, focusing on over the weekend is is beholding the glory of God in various ways and it's been a great delight to do that. We looked uh, in our first session with the men on the holiness of God, holiness and mercy in Isaiah 6. Uh the second session we focused on the the redemptive love of God from Isaiah 43 and then we focused on the Trinity for a bit from Ephesians 1. And uh, this session now this morning Uh, I'm going back to attributes because it's an area that I just think is so important for Christian people to understand. We're going to focus on one attribute of God, but it's one we we seldom talk about. Uh, We we just really, it's not in our our knowledge base, really, as, as evangelical Christians in so many of our churches. And yet I have come to see that it is one of the most important attributes, both for understanding who God is rightly, but also for understanding who we are uh, in a way that we really understand our dependence upon God, our need for Him, and, and uh, how, how great He is and how little we are. Uh, I think we really need to see this, and, and this attribute will help us with this. The attribute we'll be looking at is the self-sufficiency of God, self-sufficiency. Uh, and, uh, you know, before I get into the, the message, I just want to um, think with you for a bit about the fact that our culture really is not open to hearing uh, what I'm going to be sharing this morning from God's Word. Our, our culture is marked not by God esteem, which of course is what this is all about, the greatness of God, the littleness of me. Uh, our culture is not oriented toward God esteem, it's oriented toward self-esteem. I mean, we're the great ones, we're, we're, we're the smart ones, we're, we're the capable ones. But in fact, when you look at Scripture, there really is no encouragement anywhere for self-esteem. There is for a correct self-understanding, a correct self-assessment. But goodness, who is to be esteemed? From page 1 to, to you know, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it is God. And, you know, one of the ironies of this is uh, it's, it's kind of like the irony where Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If, if you want to build your life based on self-esteem, you'll be sorely disappointed. Because, in fact, we don't have what we think we do, right? But if you build your life based upon God esteem and you draw from Him His infinite resources of wisdom and knowledge and and strength, well, we will not be disappointed. We will be strengthened. We will be built up. So to humble ourselves before a great God is so very, very important. Well, we will see this this morning through through the study of self-sufficiency. The, the uh, outline is very si- simple. I hope you picked up a copy of it on your way in, uh, but if not, it's easy to follow anyway. Uh, we're we're going to start with a definition of self-sufficiency, talk a little bit about what that, that, uh, that understanding of God uh, means. Uh, then we're going to move on to, to supporting the self-sufficiency of God from two passages of Scripture, one in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40, and one in the New Testament, Acts 17. Uh, and then after that, we move on to applications and implications of the doctrine. So very simple, definition, passages, and then uh, application of it. So let's begin, first of all, a definition of the self-sufficiency of God. To say that God is self-sufficient is to say that God possesses within himself, intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. God possesses within himself, 
intrinsically and eternally, every quality in infinite measure. Now, by quality, I have in mind everything that is qualitatively good, uh, what is sometimes called the attributes of God, or the Puritans sometimes would refer to as the perfections of God. I mean, th- things like knowledge and wisdom, righteousness, justice, holiness, power, these qualities belong to God. And how many qualities does he have? All of them. Everything that is qualitatively good, God possesses within himself intrinsically. Now, some have wondered, do you have to say that he possesses them intrinsically when you have already said he possesses them within himself? And the answer is, yes, you do. For this very simple reason, that it's possible to possess things within yourself that are not intrinsic to you. They're extrinsic that you take in. So the simplest example is, if all of us would, in in just a moment here, take a deep breath. Are you ready? Breathe in. Ah, that feels good. Well, that breath that is within you is not intrinsic to you. I mean, how many of you thought this morning before you came to church, I hope there's air in the room, you know, when I get here, because I'm going to need to take that in in order to live for that hour that I'm going to be at church. But, you know, we don't think about that, but it's true, isn't it? We, we have to live in an environment where we take in something from outside that we need or we can't exist. Here's the point with God. He doesn't take in anything from outside. He possesses everything that is qualitatively good by his very nature as God, intrinsically for who he is as the eternal God. So indeed, he possesses all of these qualities, everything that is qualitatively good, no exception. He possesses these things within himself intrinsically and eternally. There never never was a time in eternity past, never will be a time in eternity future, certainly is not the case now, that he lacks any of these qualities. He possesses them eternally. And then finally, the last part of the definition indicates that he possesses these qualities, not only intrinsically and eternally, but in infinite measure. Now, the term infinite is a negative term, not finite, which simply begs the question, what does it mean to be to, to be to be finite. Well, to be finite is to be limited, restricted, bounded. So think of it, my friends. Everything that is qualitatively good, knowledge, wisdom, power, righteousness, everything, God possesses within himself intrinsically. It's his by his very nature as God. Eternally, they're always his, and he possesses every one of them without restriction without boundary, without limitation. What an amazing God God is. Now, is this taught in the Bible? Indeed it is. So turn with me first, if you would, to Isaiah 40. And we're going to look here at verses 12 through 17. Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 17. Uh, When we come to verse 12, the the author, Isaiah, is using rhetorical questions to paint some, some images for us of the greatness of God, the immensity of God. And uh, in, in rhetorical questions, of course, are questions whose answers are so obvious, you don't have to give an answer, right? Is the Pope Catholic? Well, of course, we know the answer to that. At least we have known until the current Pope. I don't know about this one, but uh, in any case, that's another issue for another time. Verse 12, look, look at these rhetorical questions with me. God, through the prophet Isaiah, asks, Who do you know who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I mean, those images are just, uh, just glorious, aren't they? T- take that first one. Who do you know who can measure the waters of the world? Think of it, the Atlantic Ocean the Pacific Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea that would have been familiar, familiar to Isaiah in his day. Who, who do you know who can hold the waters of the world in the hollow of his hand? Wow, what an image. Uh, you know, I have a, a wonderful memory with our own two daughters. When they were pretty little, uh, we were on vacation along the Oregon coast, just south of Cannon Beach, if you've ever been there. It's beautiful. And uh, we had a couple nights there. And the first morning when we got up, I had devotions with our family and uh, had, had an idea in mind. So I read Isaiah 40 to them, commented on, on this text. And uh, then I said after breakfast, I said, hey, girls, do you want to do a, an experiment with Daddy down at the beach? And they said, oh, yes, they're excited. I think Rachel 
was about five and Bethany was about eight. And so we went, went heading down to the beach. And when we got down there, uh, I, I said to them, okay, now here's what we're going to do. I want you to stand right along the shoreline where the waves are coming in. And I'm going to go out and wade out into that vast Pacific Ocean. And I'm going to lean down and scoop up all the water I can in the hollow of my two hands. And I want you to watch very carefully to see how far the level of the ocean dips when I do that. <laughs> okay, Daddy, they're excited. They want to see this. So they're looking real intently, and I go out and I lean down and scoop up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. I said, come on, look again. So I leaned down and scooped up water. Did it change? No, Daddy. So I came back, got down on my knees, eye level with my girls, and I said, now, girls, I want you to learn something really significant about the difference between how big we are and how big God is. I said, I'm your dad, and I go out and I scoop up all the water I can of that vast Pacific Ocean into the hollow of my two hands, and you cannot tell anything has changed. But I said, imagine, look at that ocean. Imagine a hand so big that if it came down and scooped up water, that ocean bed would be dry. That's how big God is. Wow, what an image. Now, going on in verse 12, he, he, he goes on to say, who, who do you know who is marked off the heavens by the span? You know what the span is? The distance between the tip of your thumb and your little finger. Who do you know who is marked off the heavens by the span? Which, of course, would have been a very meaningful image in Isaiah's day. In fact, in some ways, more meaningful to him than to us when, when he you know, lived in an area where it was hardly ever cloudy. And, of course, there were no electric lights. So you would see every night this display of the stars of the Milky Way galaxy. But what he did not know, of course, is how, how huge this universe is. You know, the Milky Way galaxy has, has roughly 100 billion stars in it, separated by roughly 10 light years from each other. You know, the closest star to us after the sun, uh, the sun, the, the light from the sun leaving it, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, takes about seven minutes to get to Earth. The next closest star to us after the sun, when the light leaves it, it takes four and a half years to get to Earth. That's our next door neighbor. I mean, think of it. You know, for four and a half years, light traveling at 186,000 miles per second and stars in just the Milky Way galaxy. You know, our, our larger neighborhood here uh, has 100 billion stars. And how many galaxies are there in the universe? Well, they, they don't know how to count them all. I mean, the, the telescopes keep finding more of them, hundreds of billions of galaxies with the Milky Way being one averaged sized galaxy in the universe. Incredible. Who do you know who can mark off the heavens by the span? And going on, he says, who do you know who can calculate the dust of the earth by the measure and weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? I love this image. Who do you know who can hold the scales upon which you weigh the mountains? You know, put the Himalayas over here. Put the Rockies over here. Hold the scales that weigh the mountains. So verse 12 is just this series of images that, that brings to our mind the greatness, the, the power, the immensity of God. Now, verses 13 and 14, the rhetorical questions continue, but the subject matter now shifts to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Verse 13, who do you know who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? What's the answer to those questions? Who has ever been God's advisor? Answer, no one. God has no advisors. God needs no advisors. Listen to this one, friends. God wants no advisors. Why? It's a very simple answer to that. Because he knows everything perfectly. Look, listen to those two words. He knows everything perfectly. And you, know, you, you contrast that with us. Oh my. You know, we think we know so much. But to just think of all the knowledge that there is, all of which is his, how much of that do we possess? 
By we, I mean all of the intelligence of of humankind through history, you know, including the greatest minds that have ever lived. How much do we possess? I think the answer, if we had God give us the answer right now, would be something along the lines of a grain of sand on the seashore. That's how much we know compared to what he knows. Incredible. Then, Then, here's the other thing. He knows everything perfectly. Now, my friends, this one's going to hurt. This one's going to hurt. You know, you think, okay, of all the things that we think we know, now the question is, how much of that are we correct about? And, 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 and what areas are we wrong, right? I, I told you that was going to hurt, you know? I mean, just we don't want to think about that, you know? But the, the truth is, we, we find out we're mistaken on a lot of things. God is never mistaken. He, he never has a wrong view of anything, He never misunderstands something. He never has to go, oh, I didn't see it rightly before. Oh, no. He always knows everything perfectly. You know, we we need to remember this when we pray. We're never in a position before the Almighty God where we're instructing him to let him know something he needs to know so he'll do what obviously we know should be done. You know, we, we are just not in that position. We come to him boldly in Christ, but we also come to him humbly recognizing, you remember the old TV show, Father Knows Best? Well, this father, this father knows best every time, no exception. So we come to him humbly. Goodness, if Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done, don't you think? Yeah, we we ought to pray that as well. So, I mean, to, to recognize the wisdom and the knowledge of God is just astonishing. He has it all. The power, the immensity of God. He has it all. Okay, now when we move down to verse 15, we begin to see the implications for us. We've already already hinted at them a bit, but oh my, they come out really clearly in the next few verses. Verse 15, we read, Behold, the nations. Now let me stop right there. Nations. That's the collective totality of humanity considered together. All of the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, what are they like before God? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're like, they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now, those two images really convey the same idea, don't they? A drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales, both convey something that is little, puny, tiny, insignificant, inconsequential. I mean, think for a moment. I just love this image. Imagine being in in the line at the deli counter and there's a guy in front of you who's ordered a a pound of sliced turkey. So the fellow has cut it off and put it up on the scale and he's about to push the button for the price sticker to come out. And all of a sudden, this this, uh, customer, he screams and he says, hold it. And the the clerk is kind of surprised. What's what's the problem, sir? You're about to overcharge me. What's the problem? There's a speck of dust on that scale. I mean, you would just laugh, you know. I mean, this is ridiculous. A speck of dust doesn't weigh in. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point? So what are the nations, the collective totality of humanity, like before God? A drop from a bucket. A speck of dust on the scales. Now, now some of you might be thinking, well, at least we're a drop. You know, at least we're a speck, right? Well, keep reading. It gets worse, not better. He goes on in verse 15. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. The idea there is God plays with the islands of the world like a little kid at the beach runs sand through his fingers. Verse 16. Even Lebanon, that area north of Israel, with all of its forests and all of its animals, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations, here we are back again, the collective totality of humanity. Uh, What are we before God? All the nations are as nothing before him. Well, my friends, we've been demoted, haven't we? We've, We've gone from speck and drop to nothing. You can't get worse than that, can you? You can. Keep reading. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. I think we've hit rock bottom. 
Now, it is really important, my friends, to understand what this means and what it does not mean. Let me start with what it does not mean. When God speaks through the prophets and he says, the nations are before me as less than nothing and meaningless, he does not mean, I don't care about those nations. They mean nothing to me. How do we know that cannot be the case? Well, how about John 3.16? God so loves what? The nations, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. No, indeed, he loves this, this world that he has made and the people in it. So he cannot mean he doesn't, he doesn't care about it, right? Even in Isaiah 40, I mean, the, the point, what is the point of God wanting his people to get it, to understand how great he is, how powerful he is, how wise he is? Why does he want them to get this? Well, look at the end of the chapter with me. Take a look at, uh, at verse uh, 27. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Do you see it? Why, why does God want them to get it, to understand how great he is? Because he knows us, that we, unlike him, get tired. We, 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 we lack knowledge. We need help. And so in his love for us, he wants us to know that we can go to him to receive out of the infinite fullness of the bounty that is his everything that we need that he has in infinite fullness. So indeed, this is not a God who doesn't care about his people, right? So back to verse 17, what does he mean when he says, when I look at the nations of the world, they are before me as less than nothing and meaningless. Here's what he means, my friends. If you ask the questions of all the nations of the world with all of their knowledge and power and prowess and, 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 uh, and possessions, what can those nations add to the infinite fullness that is God's. The answer is they can add nothing, absolutely nothing, because God possesses within himself intrinsically and eternally every quality in infinite measure. He cannot be benefited by the nations of this world. He has it all in himself. So indeed, what, what, what a clear indicator of the self-sufficiency of God, that, that he, he, he's the one who has the power and the knowledge and the wisdom, and we're the ones who are dependent upon him. In fact, just let me think of it this way with you. The dependence relationship between God and the world then runs one way. We depend upon God for how much? Everything. We'll see that even more explicitly in the next passage we'll look at. God depends upon us. For nothing, nothing. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. Doesn't he depend on, on uh, pe- people doing, doing service for him and the like? You know, missionaries going out to the mission field. Don't mistake dependence from God's willingness to design us to be a part of his work. That's a very different thing. That he graciously, kindly designs things in such a way that we get a part in this is very different from saying he needs us to do it. Oh no, we'll see. In fact, he does not need us to do anything, though he chooses to use us in so many ways. Huge difference, isn't there? All right, let's look at the next passage, Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17, in this passage, we find Paul in the city of Athens. He is waiting for others to join him. And as he's waiting, he has gone throughout the city of Athens and observed how religious they are. My goodness, there's altars and shrines and inscriptions in every every place throughout the city, uh, honoring every known deity. But here's the irony. 
He, he notices that, that there's nothing that indicates who, who the true God actually is. And so they ask him uh, to, to tell them who the true God is, as he understands it. And uh, he goes to the Areopagus and begins to speak then of who God is. Look with me now at verses 24 and 25. I mean, this is really theology 101 from the Apostle Paul. What is most basic in understanding rightly who God is? Here it is. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, do you see self-sufficiency in those verses? It's there. Look at verse 25. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Well, I submit to you, if he doesn't need anything, it's only because he... Already has everything, right? He possesses within himself everything. And so he doesn't need anything from any others. And that, that, that core idea of the self-sufficiency of God in verse 25 is really supported three ways by the Apostle Paul. The first one comes at the beginning of verse 24 when he says that God is the creator of all that is. He begins, the God who made the world and all things in it. Okay, now think with me for a moment. This is worth thinking hard about. The question is this, what is the logical connection between God as creator and God as self-sufficient? God as creator and God as self-sufficient. Or to put it differently, uh, the question is, what is it about God as creator that shows he must also be self-sufficient? Do you see it? Well, think about it. What, what, What does the doctrine of creation tell us in the Bible? Well, it tells us that before creation took place, someone existed. Who was that? God and God alone. He existed as God, just fine, thank you, without a universe, right? The universe universe doesn't add anything to God. The universe rather is a reflection of God. It's his wisdom shown in physical, visible ways. His his power manifest in physical, visible ways. His beauty made known in physical, visible ways. There, There is nothing in that universe that can add anything to God because everything in that universe comes from God, from him, through him, and to him are all things, as Paul will say at the end of Romans 11. So indeed, God speaks into existence a universe that did not exist before. But he is the same God before and after creation. And hence, he is self-sufficient. He doesn't need the universe that he has made. The second argument is that not only is God creator of all that is, but he is also the sovereign ruler of all that he has created. Going on in verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. Ah, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, this is just good biblical theology. To create is to own, and to own is to have rightful rulership over. Question, how much did God create? Everything. How much does he own? Everything. How much does he have rightful rulership over? Everything. Indeed, it is all his. I mean, you know, I I think of the, the, uh, the teaching that we find in Psalm 50. We won't look back at it now, but that psalm, Uh, In that psalm, Israel is on trial because they are worshiping God wrongly. They are thinking that as they bring their sacrifices to God, that God needs what they're bringing. You know, he eats the flesh of bulls and drinks the blood of male goats. You know, so so they, they, they had adopted the theology of worship that was in the pagan cultures that surrounded them. You know, we help out God. You know, he's hungry, he's thirsty, so we, we give him food to eat, we give him drink, and, and then he'll feel happy about that and, and be good to us. You know, that, that was the, the, the worship philosophy of the, of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, and Israel had adopted that. So what, is, what does God say to them? If I were hungry, don't miss the if there, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So indeed, he is not dependent upon the world that he has made. He is the one who owns that world. And, and of course, the, the connection here with self-sufficiency is 
is very clear that because God owns everything that he has made, he never is in a position like we often are where we lack something that we need to get something done, right? You need to borrow a cup of sugar from a neighbor or borrow your neighbor's lawnmower or something like that, you know? We, we don't have it. We need to get their permission. But, you know, God's never in that, in that situation because it's always his. You know, we, we need to remember this too in terms of what we call our own possessions, right? We, we, we can rightly think of private ownership horizontally as it relates to other people. So some people own certain things and stealing then is a legitimate category that we need to think about and, and uh, violating others, other people's property. All that at a horizontal level is true. But vertically with God, how much do we own before God? And the answer is we own nothing. He owns it all. So what's the, what's the proper bi- biblical category for what we have before God? Not ownership, but stewardship. Very different, isn't it? A steward is one who feels the, the responsibility to treat well that which has been entrusted to him by the owner right? The owner allows him to make use of what is not his own, what belongs to the owner, and he makes use of that in a way that honors the owner, that, that, that uses those things in a way that the owner would approve. That's stewardship. And that's what we have before God. Every penny in our pockets, in our bank accounts, every family member. You, know, you think of Job. He knew this, didn't he? The Lord has given. Yes, indeed. He gave plentifully. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He knew this, didn't he? So indeed, we we need to remember this, that before God, we own nothing. It's all his, all his. And we, we are to use what he has given us in ways that he approves, in ways that he would honor. So indeed, it's all God's, and so he can make use of anything that he wants, any time he wants, because it's his. He's rightful owner of it. And then third, the final argument for self-sufficiency comes then at the end of verse 25. He not only is creator of all that is and, and sovereign ruler of all that he has created, but then finally, the end of verse 25 He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God is the giver of all good things to all people. The two uses of the word all there are also in the Greek text. And it's just very clear. He gives all good things to all people. And of course, this is confirmed for us in so many other passages of Scripture. You think, for example, of James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Every good and perfect gift from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Uh, He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? Uh, This is the Father's generosity to us, uh, Romans 8, 32. So indeed, all things... Come from him. Well, I I submit to you, if he's the giver of all good things to all people, then he must antecedently possess all things. Indeed, he possesses within himself everything that is qualitatively good. He possesses it intrinsically, eternally, and in infinite measure. Indeed, God is self-sufficient. Now, let's move on to the implications and applications of this doctrine of the self-sufficiency of God. The first one is really the the single most important because it provides kind of the foundation for the others that we will consider. And it's really one we've already talked about, but I want to think about it with you a bit more as we begin to wrap this up together. First implication is this. Because God is fully self-sufficient... God does not need the glorious creation that he has made, either in whole or in any part, including his creation of human beings. As humbling as it is true, God does not need us or anything that we have to offer. Now, my friends, when I first learned this, and I was still pretty young, I was in, in, uh, in my late teen years, when the Lord opened my eyes to see this, um, I was shocked and stunned and honestly uh, had a hard time accepting it. 
Why? Because it's just the opposite of what I learned in the Baptist church I grew up in. That's why. I can, and by the way, uh, the story I'm about to tell of, of my church is not a good one, you know. It, it's something where it was a real problem. I mean, they weren't aware of it, but it was a real problem. But I do want to say, of this church, there were so many blessings. I, I'm, not, I'm not disparaging of the church I grew up in. Trin- Trinity Baptist Church in Spokane, Washington. My folks were charter members, and I was in the cradle roll on up, you know, in this church. Uh, I, there were many, many good things for which I am deeply grateful. But this is not one of them. And here it is. I, I can remember, uh, just as distinctly as if it happened yesterday, I, I was in the fifth grade, in a fifth grade boys' Sunday school class, basement room, cinder block walls. I mean, you can kind of picture it, can't you? Rubber bands, spit wads, you know, just all, all the stuff fifth grade boys do. And a friend of mine asked the teacher a question I had wondered many, many times. And so I perked up and listened carefully. Uh, he asked the teacher, why did God create us? Why are we here? And without any hesitation, she said this, you know, before God created us, he was all by himself. He was alone and lonely. He had no one to talk to, no one to have fellowship with, and there was this ache in his heart. And so he thought, wouldn't it be good if there were other people, you know, that I, that I could talk with and have fellowship with? And, and then this emptiness of my own heart would, would, be, would be removed uh, because of the fellowship I'd have with others. So that's why he created us. Uh, he, she said he, he, he needed a friend. And I remember thinking to myself when I heard that, what a wonderful reason for being, for living, to, to be God's friend, you know, to, to, to help out poor God. Poor God, you know, is lonely. He needs a friend. I can be his friend. I can do that. And honestly, so many things that happened in that church, I, I reflect back on now, really did, as it were, exhibit this theology of poor God. Isn't it a good thing he's got us? Right? And it, things like this, I remember missionary calls. Oh my, I mean, they, you know, oftentimes were very powerful, you know, and, but the, you know, the implication was pretty clear. If you don't go, I can still hear it ringing, you know. If you don't go, and it was almost as if God's behind, you know, he's wringing his hands, just hoping someone will, will be willing to do what's needed to get the word out there to the nations, or his hands are tied. I mean, my friends, this is such a belittling, demeaning view of God. It is so horrid in its trivialization of the greatness and the glory of God. Do you know that God does not need a single missionary to do the work that he's called missionaries to do? Let me just give you an idea here. You know, if, if God so wanted to, to spread the gospel throughout the nations of the world on his own, here's how he could do it. He is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and he is omnipresent. You know what those three words mean? He has all power, he has all knowledge, he knows everything, and he is everywhere present. You know what, he, what God could do right now, in the next 20 minutes? He could speak the gospel in perfect dialect to every single person on the planet. And the entire world would be evangelized in the next 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, he could do that. He does not need missionaries. Now, we're going to get to another point here on why then he calls us to service. So we'll get there. But I'll t- I just want to establish right up front, he doesn't call missionaries because he needs them to do this. Oh, no. He can do it all himself. He doesn't need us or anything that we have to offer. So if the, if the correct answer to the question, why are we here and why, does God, why did God create us, is not. He was lonely and, and he wanted a friend uh, so, so he wouldn't feel so, so empty in his own heart. By, by the way, um, do you know the, the theological answer to the notion that before God created us, he was lonely, all by himself and lonely? You know, the answer to that is the doctrine of the Trinity. God is a social unity. Father, Son, and Spirit in everlasting, joyous fellowship, communion, love relationship together that far surpasses anything God could have with merely finite creatures. 
So indeed, there is no loneliness in God. He is infinitely full and rich and joyful in himself as the triune God. Okay, so if God did not create us because he was lonely, then why are we here? Capital letter B. Next point. What is our purpose? Are you ready to worship, my friends? This is astonishing. Just utterly amazing. Here's the answer. Though God does not need us, amazingly, drop your jaw at this point, amazingly, he loves us. Now, just stop right there and think. There there is no relationship like this that exists among human beings. One in which one of the parties loves the other one with, with a deep and fervent love, but has no need whatsoever of what that other brings to the table, contributes to him or her. No, I mean, think even in marriage. I mean, goodness, if one of the partners in that marriage ever thought for a moment, oh, I'm the, I'm the self-sufficient one. You know, I don't need anything from my spouse. You know that marriage is in trouble because we need each other. I mean, God designed human relationships to be ones in which the love that we have for each other is one in which we both give and we receive and, and, and we need each other in this. Certainly that's true in the body of Christ and in everything. But here is a relationship unlike any other in which God loves us with incredible intensity, incredible fervor, incredible faithfulness when he does not need us. It's amazing, isn't it? Though he does not need us, he loves us. Okay, so then why why create us? Why why redeem us in Christ? Here's the answer. And so, hence, his purpose in creating and redeeming us is not that we might fill up some lack in him, but rather that he might fill us up with himself. He made us empty to be filled with his fullness, thirsty to drink of the water of life he provides, weak to receive his strength, foolish to be instructed and corrected by his wisdom. In his love, he longs to give, to share the bounty. He wants us to experience in finite measure the fullness of joy and blessing he knows infinitely, all to redound to the praise and the glory of his name, the giver and the provider of all the good that we enjoy. Do you see it? Why are we here? Not to help out poor God, but in his mercy, in his bountiful kindness, to help out poor us, right? He, he, he wants to love us. He wants to give to us. He wants to fill us up with himself. His character remaking ours. His holiness becoming our holiness. His wisdom becoming our wisdom. His truth becoming our truth. His power sustaining us when, when we are weak and, and, and frail. You, you see, it's all about God giving to us. And, and when that happens, of course, what, what's the automatic response of one who has been benefited so richly by God? What do we do? We worship him. We praise him, right? So indeed, our praise of him is a praise of the one who has been so generous, so kind, so gracious, so giving, so bountiful to such needy, undeserving, unworthy people. It's incredible, isn't it? He's the giver. We're the receiver. He, he's, he's the provider. We're the ones who need the provisions. He, he's the protector. We're the ones who need to be protected. It, it's a one-way street, friends, of what he gives to us. Now, you think, well, wait a minute. Don't we give back to him? Next point. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going there quite yet, but that's the next point. We'll get there. But one more thing here I want us to see. That in his purpose in creating us, it really is then that we might be the objects of his love. We are created by God. I mean, this is a simple way to think of it. We are created by God, redeemed by God, to be loved by him. Now you think, wait, that doesn't sound right. I thought our created purpose was to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, yes, it is. But question, with what do you do that? With what do you do that? With what do you love God? We love because he first loves us. So indeed, we have to draw from him 
what he gives to us in order for us then (laughs) to express that to others and to him indeed. From him, through him, to him are all things. Moving on, third application point. Why does God need our service, enlist our service? Consider Psalm 100, verse 2, which says, serve the Lord with gladness. It's an imperative. And Acts 17, 25, which says, God cannot be served by human hands as though he needed anything. So which one is it? Is it, is it serve the Lord with gladness or he cannot be served? Which one is it? Well, how, how do they go together? Well, the answer is this. God does not need our service. That's the point of Acts 17, 25. So his call for us to serve, Psalm 100, verse 2, is his gracious call for us to participate in the privilege and the joy of the ministry of grace that flows from him into us and then through us into the lives of others. We can take no credit All that we have is a gift from him, and he gives us what we have to be used in service to others. So, my friends, he doesn't need us to serve. He doesn't need me here this morning. He he could, in some way he chose, convey these very truths to you personally, you know, in in a variety of different ways for for a variety of different people. He, He could just do it himself. He doesn't need to use human instruments to do this, but... This is, again, where you see his love. His love for us is so great that among the ways in which he expresses his love for us is not only by creating us to be filled with him, but creating us to, as we're filled with him, to then share the bounty with others. So some of the work, a significant part of the work that he does in the lives of others comes through human vehicles, conduits of his grace, of his mercy, of his truth, of, of, his, of his power through others into their lives when he could just do it unilaterally. I am astonished at this, that he is so generous that he allows us to enter into his work. You know, p- part of why I'm astonished at this is because I don't like to share my work. I'm, I'm uh, jealous about my own work. For right or wrong, I think it's mostly wrong. I'm jealous about my own work, and I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. I like to do things my own way. I can remember times when our girls were little, and I would be work, working on some woodworking project in the basement. I used to do that. I, haven't, I kind of quit all of that. But I used to work with wood, and I was you know, doing something in the basement, uh, working with wood, and I would hear the pitter-patter of little steps you know, as they came down the stairs with what I knew would be the most horrible words I could anticipate. Daddy, can I help you? No! (laughs) Stay away. I don't want you here. You know, I just stay away from my work. So I'd have to find something for for them to do over the corner. You know, some little feeble thing over there. So they they wouldn't bother me in my work. Isn't God amazingly different? I mean, to share with us his work. You know, when, when you think of Christian ministry, and by that I don't mean people like your pastor and myself who are in paid positions of ministry. I mean every one of us. You know, Ephesians 4 makes clear that people like us, you know, pastors, teachers, are to equip the, the saints for the work of ministry. So the ministers in the church are all of us right? It's not, not some special class of people. We're the ministers. All of us are the ministers. So when, when you think of the ministry, ministering on behalf of God, serving God, um, if the words that come to your mind prominently are words like difficult, uh, um, struggle, uh, pain, opposition, you, you know, those, those kinds of words may be true, But if those are the words that are prominent in your thinking when you think of Christian service, you're missing it. Here's the one word that ought to be top of the list. First thing that comes to our minds and hearts when we think of ministry. Privilege. Privilege. To enter into a part of what God is doing in in, in ways he's assigned to us that he doesn't doesn't need us to do it. You know, so those missionaries I talked about uh, a moment ago, yes, God doesn't need any missionaries, but he calls them, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. And, and, And so his design is for the gospel to go out not by him unilaterally taking care of it, 
But instead, I give you the privilege of bearing the best news there is. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings to to others. So indeed, God gives the privilege of ministry. and, and, And we then are the recipients of his grace and then convey that grace and truth and power to others as we have received it from him. Then finally, last point of application How can we know and be rightly related to this glorious, rich, and full God? And of course, the answer is this, that in our sin, it's impossible. Apart from God's grace, we are eternally separated from this one who alone is good, true, wise, holy, beautiful, and joy-filled. I mean, you realize how significant this is to be separated from God? is to be separated from all hope of ever experiencing true joy, understanding truth rightly, of of having wisdom, of being able to experience the, the, the joy and blessing of life as God intends it to be. We can never have it separated from him. So what does God do? He sends his son. He, he, he offers to us through the work that his son has done on the cross, that by believing in Christ, we might enter into right relationship with the very one who has created us to be united to him, to experience from him the fullness of joy and blessing as we receive from him all that he is flowing into our lives. So have you trusted in Christ Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, this one we're talking about, who has it all. No one comes to the Father except through me. So indeed, my friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, you need to know. You can never experience the joy that God created you to have without bowing and repenting of your sin and believing in Christ. And, and if you are a believer, you have trusted in Christ, then let me just remind you this morning as we close. We have been created by God to be filled with him, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power filling our lives. Where do you suppose we go to have that happen? Ah, how about in his word? Preached, taught, read at home, read in family devotions. His word is the vehicle the Spirit uses to help us know who God is, help us receive the bounty of the treasure that he has for us. May may God work in us to give us an increasing love for him, zeal to pursue him and seek him, and a longing to to, to, to know him more fully through his word. Let's pray together as we close this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had of looking at a glorious truth about you, that you are the self-sufficient God. And Father, we we truly are not self-sufficient. We are needy creatures. We we are poor and miserable creatures. Uh, we, we, We have so many ways in which we lack and we struggle. And Father, it is so good to know that through Christ, we can come to you who has it all. Give us hearts, Lord, that will be humble before you, to think not of our greatness, but of your greatness, uh, not, not of our wisdom, but of your wisdom, and come, with, come to you humbly and receive from you the blessing and the joy uh, of, of uh, fellowship with you and all that you have to give us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.